Hello and welcome to the AIM Research Podcast. I'm your host, Grant Collins, here for the third quarter outlook. And again, I have Dr. Ron Sanderson with us to help digest the incoming economic data and the changing landscape of both the economy and financial markets. Uh, Ron, how's it going? Pretty good. Pretty good. Things have been, uh, of course, uh, a little interesting over the last quarter. Very much so. Uh, We've seen a lot of shift in market sentiment. We've seen a lot of shift in economic data, and hopefully this will shed some light on those changes and give you some indication of what we're considering moving through uh, the third quarter this year. Uh, so, as always, we love to tackle the two key variables that we follow being growth and inflation. And so, Ron, let's let's start with, with growth. Um, when I run my current model estimates, uh, we're seeing... Uh, growth continuing to accelerate, but at, at a much slower pace than what we have seen coming out of the pandemic lows. Um, what are you seeing in the data? Uh, something very similar, uh, although that shouldn't surprise us. Uh, you know, in economics, we talk about diminishing returns uh, constantly, and that is the idea that um, when something initially happens, it has a greater impact, but uh, as it as it repeats. It has less and less uh, an impact. Um, you know, one can think about this uh, if you have kids. You know, maybe if you're potty training, a good buddy of mine's potty training one of his kids right now, and you might use some candy to get them to go to the bathroom. And of course, at first, you know, one piece of candy has a very high impact on the compliance rate of getting them to go to the bathroom. But you know, after a week or so, that payment of one piece of candy is a little less impactful. You know, maybe you have to change it to two. Yeah. Three, uh, and I think that's um, what we're seeing, and what we would kind of expect to see in growth as well. That um, you know, on the margin, to go from uh, when COVID started, the production being cut so drastically that any increase in production at first is going to have a much higher impact on the margin than the subsequent next increase and the subsequent next increase after that. So I think that's not unsurprising that we are going to see uh, some of that effect get teased out here as, as, as we go. Yeah, no, and, and it actually makes me want to go like three different directions um, because part of what you're hitting at too is even from the monetary side of things and why we continue to see both uh, the Fed and Congress adding more and more stimulus on top of this, um, which, you know, when we look at some of our data, uh, it does look like the output gap in the economy is closing. We'll see as we get the second quarter data coming in here this week. But the fact that they're still very much on the gas pedal in the sense of, one, the Nurbur uh, recession study came out. They said it was the shortest recession on record. I'm going to have to check my economic textbook in the sense that I thought a recession was two consecutive quarters. <laughs> uh, so this will be really interesting to to see the fact that, okay, this is two months. We were done in April, and we're back off to the races again. Um, but I think I want to go down the rabbit hole first because we're going to touch on um, – uh, stimulus and monetary policy a little bit later, but but I think I want to look at kind of the high level because I think this fits my framework of long term. We're seeing the factors of production continue to diminish, um, and so uh, where I've spent a lot of my time is looking at technology, labor, and capital, and 
we're seeing that since all three of them are having this diminishing capacity, that we're getting this lower and lower growth rate. Um, and you really want one of these factors to step up and carry the load and get us back out of this um, this disinflationary environment, if you will. Um, but what are your your takes on that? You and I have talked offline a little bit about some of the research I've done in the production function, looking at each one of them individually, but tell me a little bit about what you're thinking about the production function as it stands today. Sure. Well, I would think, again, barring changes, that's not unsurprising in the sense that um, capital and labor and technology will revert to a more stable level, mm -hmm. right? Um, you can never see in the long run high, high rates of growth persist for very long. Mm -hmm. um, so usually what changes and what takes time and alters all three factors of production, you know, um, is new industry, and by new industry I don't necessarily mean just more jobs or, or more capital, but new creation of entire industries or entire um, forms of business, and that takes a lot of time, right? And so, you know, we've seen that these factors will attenuate barring a change, right? So, you know, labor back in the early 1900s looks a lot different than labor does today, mm -hmm. um, even though labor today on a per capita basis is paid much higher than labor was back 100 years ago. Right. Um, so I, I think that's always a classic worry. However, um, and it's easy to become a Luddite in that fashion and worry about it. And by the way, I don't have any secret uh, knowledge about what the new next <laughs> industry will be. Everybody loves to opine on that. Um, but what tends to happen uh, is that as labor gets displaced, and is what's going on right now, whether it be displaced through technology or regulations, um, eventually people get tired of sitting at home mm -hmm. and invent something new to do at their time that is a new economically valuable commodity that has never occurred before. Um, now that takes a long time to develop. However, I think uh, in general that's what you're going to tend to eventually see. So I don't see much like diminishing returns. If the skill set for labor remains the same, then yes, we should expect those returns to keep diminishing and diminishing until they just get flat. Right. Same thing for capital, same thing really for technology. So it's some new combination of those things um, in a ingenious way, uh, which we might not yet uh, be able to see. Well, and that, that really hits on some of the charts that we have in our slide deck, and, and we're going to post those alongside this uh, this podcast here. But in the second slide, you get to the heart of, of, of really what technology has been doing in general. And because it has those three effects on the economy, this displacement, this productivity, and this reinvestment effect, we've seen, uh, at least coming out of the 60s, 70s, and early 80s, most of that being the productivity and the reinstatement effect. And it's provided us the ability to be almost two and a half times more productive than we were in the past. But but you're also seeing that displacement effect taking a much greater hold, and it's being accelerated at the same time, not only by COVID, because we've started to adopt technology in a much quicker fashion, 
but also uh, the Brookings Institute did a really interesting study from a, a policy perspective saying, look, tax rates on labor versus tax rates on things like software and equipment are below 15% versus labor being 25%. So it's a day and night different as far as what your employers and your corporations are looking at. And so this automation is beginning to be adopted in a much quicker and much faster fashion. And, and so I love that you brought up the, the displacement effects hopefully can eventually have this wave of innovation coming behind it uh, because we don't want to be sitting at, at the house all the time. Um, there's a really interesting um, uh, economist that, that looks at this same problem in technology um, and he worries about as we displace more and more workers that you're going to get into a situation where more and more transfer payments continue to persist to help offset this displacement. And so now you have government playing a much larger role and a bigger piece of the pie. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that. Um, how do you see that? And, of course, I think I know where you're going to go with it, but I'm curious. All right. Well, I guess I see it as that kind of classic old fable of the snake and the mongoose. <laughs> uh, you know, you might remember the fellow had a snake problem, so he bought a mongoose to get rid of the snake. Uh, and then he now had a mongoose problem. So I can't remember, he gets a tiger or something to get rid of the mongoose, and of course he has a tiger problem, and et cetera, et cetera. And so, unfortunately, a lot of these, I think, get into some circular reasoning in the sense that, um, you know, there's displacement, so we're going to give support payments, and then we get more displacement because of the support payment, you know, so it just becomes this ever-winding ever road of this. I'm, I'm not as fearful of the world needing constant support payments um, that's been a fear from the dawn of time with machines uh, you know the, the the dreaded steam engine during the industrial <laughs> revolution was uh, you know going to put lots of farmers out of work right and somehow we transferred from an economy in the u.s uh, that was roughly 80 percent of the jobs in the u.s at the turn of the 1900s was around was in agriculture uh, to today roughly only two percent but yet we don't see absolute devastation, nobody being able to work, et cetera, et cetera. And so, again, uh, that creative destruction of the markets that any economist learns to, I think, appreciate the more they become an older economist, <laughs> um, as I have now become, um, appreciates and has to have some humility for the fact that, well, I don't know exactly how that's going to look, um, that effect has always seemed to persist, and that worry of workers getting displaced by technology or machinery and capital, um, you know, has really been throughout the ages, and and you know, spawned large political movements and everything else, uh, but usually ends up being uh, much ado about nothing uh, to a certain extent. So I guess that's uh, where I. Where you shake out. Where, where I shake out on that. <laughs> well, then we hope the reinvest or the I'm sorry, the reinstatement effects of technology can take a greater hold uh, and offset that over time. So the other factors of production, let's touch base on those a little bit here before we dig into our, our Q3 outlook. Because I do think broadly that since these factors are diminishing, it does hold a lid on growth a little bit here. So let's touch let's touch on labor um, with the automations and the demographics shifting and changing as well. Um, 
again, I've, I've got some really good research as far as your average age of population. Uh, you've almost got 15% of the population over the age of 65, and that's going to continue to accelerate as the baby boomers age and retire. And on top of that, you've got a stagnating labor force participation rate coupled with an abysmal birth rate for future labor force participation. So how are you looking at um, not necessarily labor today, we're going to dig into that when we get into the third quarter, but labor as a broad perspective over the next decade or Over so. the next decade, it, it is going to be certainly a challenge. Um, as Julian Simon, one of my favorite economists who wrote The Ultimate Resource, being a human mind, uh, would say that uh, unlike the uh, population bombers out there like Paul Ehrlich and company, that... Um, Increases in population are a net benefit to society and to an economy. Uh, so certainly the demographics being below replacement is an area of concern. It's about 1.6 right now in the U.S. So two, a number of two would be replacement, right? You have a family, you have two kids, you fully replaced yourselves. Um, so we're at about 1.6, and that includes uh, pre uh this latest immigration crisis that includes immigration. So even even with immigration, we're at about 1.6 okay. in, in the U.S. In, um, in the replacement rate. However, we are not unique. Um, pretty much all of the westernized world is currently finding itself in a below-replacement type scenario. Um, so it, it really the only countries that are above replacement right now are uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, some countries in the Middle East, um, you know, that tends to be the case. They tend to be more fundamentalist countries religiously, actually, so we tend to see more of that, for whatever reason, um, uh, being above replacement. Now, would that stay the same? Maybe not, you know, because of migration. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, who's to tell, but certainly all westernized economies are going to have a challenge in terms of um, the way a lot of retirement systems are set up, because most of these retirement systems that were set up at the turn of the end of, the, of World War II in a, in a lot of countries um, coming out of that, uh, to displace a labor force back then, right? Mm -hmm. Social Security in this country really was started to retire a bunch of people as a fear that, uh, you know, GIs returning from World War II would not have jobs. Mm -hmm. um, but then again, we were at a, you know, like a three or so you know, in terms of replacement. So those systems only really work when we are kind of well above replacement from a demographic standpoint. So um, something is going to have to change. I don't right. think economies will crater necessarily, but... Which is why you they're, um, you're seeing policy being pushed in that direction. So you had China roll back the one-child policy. Absolutely. You yeah. had the U.S. now doing child tax credits, for instance. Yes. So, you know, at a larger scale, we've been sure. having child tax credits. We have, but um, and certain, uh, certainly it was in, uh, in the 90s, British Columbia and Estonia, uh, had two different policies, but uh, Estonia was having so much net out-migration, they actually started paying women to have babies mm -hmm. um, to kind of solve that problem. And, of course, people respond to incentives. So, yep. unsurprisingly, uh, that occurred, although then they had a, a little bit of a problem with uh, single-parent households, whereas in British Columbia, they gave it through a tax credit for married uh, couples to have babies. Uh, so, you know, two different policies, uh, two different kind of results, both increased population um, but in in different ways um, 
so certainly that is is going to be an issue from either you know it's going to have to be solved probably from multiple points right partially from the benefits side of things uh, in terms of with these demographics um, there is going to have to be a change to um, insurance benefits in old age social security mm -hmm. yeah. um, which never was a retirement plan although americans have taken it to <laughs> mean that it's a retirement plan oh yeah um you but, see plenty of papers out there that say it's 40 percent of your income or 50 yes, percent of yes, your retirement it was, it was never meant to be a full uh, retirement package right right but there even at that there is going to have to be some changes to, you know so you'll probably see policy changes on both sides of the fence right on the others, you know, on the uh, expenditure side in terms of social programs, certainly there's going to have to be some trimming there, more than likely. How that'll look, who knows, uh, because, you know, the political wins 10 years from now could, could, you know, even though, of course, everybody, every country, and again, it's not U.S.-specific, tries to avoid um, those discussions because it is invariably not politically popular. Right. Uh, to to touch those and then on the other side probably some policies on the population side in terms of population uh, growth you know and, and and how that happens and, and whether it, it, it not that I'm suggesting we pay women to have babies here in this country that's certainly not, <laughs> I'm, not I'm not getting behind any particular <laughs> policy um, but you know that or different uh, migration policies and things like that that may uh, positively impact but you know, that might lead just to kind of a, uh, kind of like the currency wars, just a run to, a race to the bottom there to try mm -hmm. and get as much migration as, as you can, as you can um, which, you know, eventually isn't going to end up well for anybody if we're kind of playing tit for tat on the policy side. I just saw the other day, um, the UK has just announced a new policy, so speaking on demographics, of um, allowing, I'm going to, butcher the term high impact immigration so basically even if you don't have a job if you have a college degree or above they will let you come into the country uh, and that would be your immigration qualification uh, in terms of that so they're trying to seek a higher work so we're starting to see some of those things already um, so you that, have this competing labor force across countries now yes and, and you know and I think that's you know, really in large part, we live in a global world now, and you're going to see countries compete for residency. labor in wow. residency. Wow, wow. Um, interesting. And so that's, that's already started. I don't know if that crossed your radar yet or not. No, but, I did um, not see that. That's yeah, interesting. So, um, that's I certainly one way to solve the demographic issue if you get a massive wave of, of, of immigration. Yes, um, yes. And so, yeah, I think we're going to see a bunch of different uh, tries at different policy responses um, due to this diminished do yeah. this yeah mm -hmm. and it's mm -hmm. so and that really does highlight two of the three and capital we've seen diminish for for multiple different reasons debt of course probably being the biggest in the sense that debt is dragging um, but i think qe is having some of this the issues with this too so two economists michael spence and kevin warsh uh, talk about how it's much easier now for corporations to invest in financial assets rather than tangible assets because of what quantitative easing has done to the economy in the sense that it's smoothed volatility in, in financial assets. It's created upward uh, momentum in financial assets. And it's much easier to, to liquidate a share or a bond in the marketplace than it is for a factory or equipment, uh, things of that nature. 
so talk to me. How are you looking at, at capital? Uh, that's kind of the way that, that I'm seeing. Yeah, and, and I think this is, again, a, a interesting period in economics in the sense that when this production function got developed, again, turn of the Industrial Revolution, economists were trying to figure out, you know, what was going on. Um, and when Cobb, Doug, Cobb and Douglas kind of, you know, put this forward, um, capital was very important. You know, because machines were very large, obviously, in those days, you know. And so capital intensity was, uh, I think, a much better indicator back then of the health of an economy and GDP growth than it is now. Um, I think we are seeing kind of uh, a new 100-year, whatever you want to call it, shift again in um, the necessity. I don't think capital Mm -hmm. is as important a factor in economic growth now uh, than it was, especially with kind of this um, revolution going on in industry, uh, such as 3D printing and and those types of things, right, where you really don't need to have, in in a lot of industries, not all industries, I mean, there are still some that are very heavily capital intensive uh, and certainly do need that capital intensiveness. Um, But in a lot of the production now, uh, as this, develops with technologies such as 3D printing, um, you do not need to have nearly the amount of capital, square footage, number of machines, you know, as you used to, right? And so um, I think that's one of these things we always kind of benchmark off of kind of maybe a historic norm Mm because that's what we're comfortable doing. But that may not be so appropriate and that's going a, forward. That's probably an appropriate place to throw you throw you a curveball, uh, because as um, as the economy has shifted and changed, right? Um, we now also are hearing more and more of this wave of clean energy and um, more of sustainable energy, just in general. Um, is energy potentially a new factor of production? Energy broadly, in the sense of you, you now have to have that in conjunction with technology and labor to have a productive economy. That's a curveball. I told you I was going to throw that. That is a curveball. I think yes and no. Um, You know, again, the the energy policy has always been an issue. Um, Certainly there's always been in energy a, uh, a policy prescription to either want to make it very, very cheap to subsidize it, um, which then in turn causes companies to not really include it as a true cost of operating. Um, or you can see the under, you know, side of the spectrum to make it really, really expensive to discourage people from mm-hmm. using it, as is more common in Europe with uh, their high rates of tax you know, on gasoline and things like, things like that. Um, when it comes to uh, energy, I think there's, you know, kind of a bit of a trade-off there. You know, we're, we're still at a lot of hard break-evens, right? Um, I was looking at some solar panels and I've looked at solar uh, for a while, and still it seems like the rough break-even is 17 to 20 years mm. before somebody who invests in that actually breaks even on their money. So you're paying more upfront costs moving to that type of energy, but... And so you, you might be seeing it, right, every month is a lower energy bill, but at the same time, you had to pay out a whole bunch, right? So, you know, the break-even is probably roughly 17 to 20 years in terms of if I just paid my utility bill 
you know, versus uh, going green. Unfortunately, the big problem is the lifespan of that equipment is about, you guessed it, 20 years. <laughs> so, you know, uh, right now, I think the problem that a lot of renewables still faces is that the lifespan of the equipment, you know, from an economic standpoint, and we, we could debate externalities of pollution and, you know, how much we should incentivize reducing, you know, but leaving that aside, leaving aside the, you know, the, the pollution and, and other concerns um, that uh, renewable still has this kind of really huge issue, at least in terms of solar and wind and, and the, you know, those types of things um, in terms of being cost effective. It, it's mm -hmm. not there yet, certainly. Right. Um, will it get there? I don't know, because something else new may crop up before we get to that point. You know, you think back, and it took us 100 years in this country to figure out distribution of gasoline in an efficient manner. You know, I mean, it used to get sent to gas stations via horse and buggy, right? It was not uncommon for, you know, those things to blow up in transport, right? You know, so it took us 100 years to get that supply chain figured out via market forces, you know, to really get it to where it to where it's at. Mm. Um, the problem with renewables is there isn't that, you know, in terms of whether it's a fully electric car, if you're going to try and travel across the country, mm -hmm. you know, those types of infrastructure isn't there. Um, probably the closest would be hydrogen, but again, the problem is, is making hydrogen is still not super cost effective, but it could mimic what a conventional gas car does in terms of usage to the consumer. Mm -hmm. And really, at the end of the day, if renewables are going to be successful in whatever fashion, whether it's powering a factory, whether it's, you know, powering your home, whether it's, you know, transportation, is it has to be able to meet the consumption pattern of the consumers or they quite simply won't adopt it. Right, right. No, that, I mean, that hits the nail on the head. And I think, at least from the broad perspective, even if the production function is changing as far as the factors we need to consider, I think one thing that we can agree on is that currently it's holding a lid on economic growth. And I think that's a perfect segue into looking at where do we see growth in the next three to six months because ultimately that's what investors care about. They care about the here and now, not the decades from now. But I do think having that longer-term view can help us shape some of the landscape of, of where we're going. Uh, so when we dig into our, our third quarter outlook, I think there's a couple things I want to hit on. Of course, growth in the next three to six months. Uh, talking a little bit on um, the economy side as far as the gaps, whether it's the unemployment gap, the inflation gap, or the output gap, and then really hit on uh, the health of the consumer and what that means for markets and policy. So maybe let's kick it off with just growth broadly. So again, uh, the model estimates that we have is um, that the output gap is going to close, uh, potentially even at this next uh, the quarter here uh, that comes up Thursday as you've got the uh, Atlanta Nowcast coming in at 7.57% and then the blue chip estimates from Economist is 8.2% I believe. Um, so talk to me a little bit about uh, what you're looking at Ron and, and, and how you're seeing growth uh, broadly moving through the next three to six months. Three to, next three to six months uh, I think growth will uh, 
the rate of increase will continue to decrease as we talked about with that marginal gains um, because it is going to take time for large factors to to move um, so I suspect to see a mild continued increase in growth but at a decreasing rate yeah which is primarily the big thing that we're looking at is that rate of change so we're still gonna have positive numbers on the GDP estimates and 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 data that come out uh, but the issue is is that we may be peaking here in the second quarter and we're going to be rolling over as we move through the rest of this year um, and I think that that's probably uh, one of the really interesting points is that that puts uh, policymakers in a really interesting uh, situation in the sense that you're closing that output gap very, very quickly, uh, which starts to make this accommodative policy, um, it, it makes it question it a little bit in the sense of, okay, we've recovered from the recession. Again, the Nerber study said that uh, look, we're only two uh, two months was the, was the recession. Um, so before we shift into inflation and unemployment and the consumer, um, how do you think that starts to change the landscape of, of policy, knowing that that output gap is going to be closed maybe potentially in the next two quarters? I think that the issue is really less about policymakers knowing this and more about how the man or woman on the street views it. Mm -hmm. um, because uh, a lot of folks have a hard time seeing the difference between a GDP still going up, but maybe at a decreasing rate, right? Um, so I think the biggest problem is, is the biggest driver always in GDP is consumer sentiment. Yeah. And so I think the issue is less about accommodative or not, I think it's whether the Fed uh, and other policymakers see this as scaring uh, consumers, right? Yeah. So it's more on the interpretation, less about the policy itself. We call this, a lot of times in game theory, we have what we call framing effects. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'll give you an example here. We used to do this in grad school all the time. You know, I'd say we'd get people in a room to run an experiment. We'd say, okay, this, you know, miracle drug can save a third of the population, you know, drug X. And we'd say, okay, uh, drug Y here, if we use that drug, two-thirds of the population will die. Well, numerically, they should be indifferent <laughs> to the choice. <laughs> right. But they never are, mm. right? That, that framing effect, they would pick the one with the word save versus the one with the word die. Yeah. And so really, I think more importantly is how this is going to be framed and whether the population, you know, or whether individuals really buy into that, that framing effect mm -hmm. um, or buy into that, that term because really, you know, you see this issue all the time, right? Uh, is it an estate tax or death tax, right? That's a framing effect argument brought on by different folks depending on their policy that they are trying to you know, uh, push. There's a method to the madness. That's right. <laughs> and so I think more important is going to be that framing effect to um, let everybody take a breath, you know. So if there's a, if there is a way that we can, you know, frame it, I honestly think in terms of, you know, um, stimulus and everything else, we are probably at peak necessary stimulus and everything else. Right. However, 
if most people see the cessation of a stimulus as, oh no, mm-hmm. then it's going to be a problem. Right. And it'll be a self-inflicted problem because as economic agents act in a particular way, it could cause another downturn. Right. Just as if they act in the reverse way, yes, we're good to go. You know, and so I think that's really, and that's unfortunately the political economy is, uh, as uh, it got noted by uh, John Stuart Mill way back when, um, sometimes is more important than some of our physical uh, measures and numbers. Well, and hitting on the consumer, we have some survey data that, that's been posted in here. And um, on top of that, we've seen the consumer confidence start to roll over a little bit from some of the peak levels that we've seen. And I think that's just as important. Uh, but I want to highlight some of these surveys that, that was done by Stephen Gardner, which is a, a famous YouTuber who focuses a lot on policy. Um, and I think that that hits the nail on the head of, of what you mentioned and even in what you're seeing in potentially the consumer confidence surveys in the sense that one of the questions he asked is if $1,000 fell into your lap today, how would you use it? The 27,000 respondents uh, of that, 50% of them said that they'd use it uh, towards paying on their mortgage or their rent or their car payment. Um, two surprising notes that, that I saw was 17% of respondents said that they'd use it to buy groceries for their home. Um, not to mention one of the other surveys that he did, again, another 29,000 respondents. Uh, the CEO of Bank of America said that 60% of the stimulus money is just setting in bank accounts. Uh, let me know if your money is sitting at the bank. And 91% of the respondents said no, 60% of my stimulus is not at the bank level. Um, it's a little bit more ambiguous from a survey uh, perspective, but I think it does paint a picture in the sense that, one, it seems like the stimulus has worked its way through the system uh, in the sense that uh, it's either been saved it's been invested or it's been used to pay down debt in some form or fashion. I think we highlighted that in the last quarter. I think this again highlights that. So I think what will be interesting is with this new tax credit rolling out, um, not knowing who's going to opt in and who's going to opt out of it, but it seems like if I was to just broadly state, I believe it's probably going to go to one of these three areas. Um, The thoughts as far as the consumer confidence data or, or the consumer surveys data here? Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. And, of course, uh, these surveys, it's kind of tough to tease out, you know. So the people who said they were going to use it to put toward their mortgage, is it to keep current on their mortgage or is it to pay ahead? Good point. Because some people may be using it to pay ahead. actually pay ahead or pay down and use it to, you know, service some debt, uh, you know, ahead of time, um, which is going to make for an interesting policy. You know, that again comes to answering that question of whether we've done enough or too much. That's important because, of course, we're actually destroying the money supply if they're using it to pay down ahead. And so we're creating money for people just to... Retire money. Retire money. (laughs) Um, And so that can become a really odd loop. Uh, So I I think that's where we have to be careful. Same thing with the the question about it's not at the bank. Well, it might not be at the bank because I'm just using it to spend down... On a, on a bunch of debt that I had previously, so you know I'm, I'm clearing my personal balance sheet 
Um, and the effect is truly nil. And the effect and is truly nil. I mean, because really, I have to imagine, you know, the lowest point of the uh, unemployment rate in COVID, we still had, you know, a little over 60% of the population still had a job. Yeah. Um, so I can't imagine all 60%, and, and maybe, and again, who knows with the survey data, who, who responded, were right. they all the people who lost a job uh, during the pandemic, or were some of them ones who had a job and are using it in the, in the, the, the manner uh, I stated, I just have a hard time picturing all of that stimulus going with 60% of the population still being employed, mm-hmm. only getting used to just keep food on the table, right. I guess, and for, for lack of a better, really right. good descriptor. Right. Um, you know, uh, so that's where it's really tough to get at. And of course, you also, here comes back the political economy point. Um, you know, people will see this as, quote unquote, free money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there will be a lot of political pressure to keep it up because if I can get the government to keep sending me money to pay down my debts, I have a big incentive to pressure to keep that happening. Right? Well, and it could be yeah. the backdoor way to provide universal basic income. It's not universal basic income in the sense that it's fixed, it's it's right. definite, you know right. exactly what you're going to get. There's some right. qualifiers attached mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the sense that the stimulus has gone on long enough that the feel is very much similar to universal. That's basic true, income. and you also have what we call ratchet effects in economics. I don't know how familiar you are with those, mm-hmm. but you know, um, with the stimulus, people ratcheted up their spending more than likely to a different level. Yeah, um, I believe uh, Irving Fisher talked about that when he was talking about his quantity of money theory. He did. Yeah. In the sense of they have this consumption ratio. And that's the ratio that they consume based on the income that's coming in. And when you get this boost to the income side, the consumer will naturally raise their consumption ratio. I didn't want to steal your, no, steal no, your point you're, there. You, no, thank you. You're correct. Uh, you're a good student of economics. Well, the other problem is, though, is what we notice is people have a harder time ratcheting back down. Ah. Very easy to ratchet up. Yeah. Very hard to ratchet back down. You will find this uh, in lots of studies where even people who've lost their job will dig into their 401k to continue their current consumption pattern. Um, it is very, very difficult for people in general, um, me included, you know, we're all human, uh, to ratchet back down. Right. So this is going to, I think, be one of the kind of policy issues is it's going to be very problematic to unwind it from a political economy sense. Uh, because this ratchet effect gets so big and it's been in place long enough now that people have incorporated it as part of their their income and their expectations. Well, and even taking it a step further, the ratchet effect could also have some damaging implications in the sense that the inflation rate is sticking higher than what it should be. Uh, and so we've now had these three rounds of stimulus. We've got the child tax credit rolling out. You've got the Fed doing $120 billion of quantitative easing. Uh, and this has pushed uh, the inflation rate uh, north of 5%. And um, our model estimates say that this is going to stick throughout the summer and through the fall. And it especially could continue when you have an infrastructure bill coming and not knowing how many people are going to opt out of this child tax credit. So... Um, one of the things I've been trying to wrap my head around is understanding 
when the Fed is going to determine this as a problem, and when are they going to begin to potentially raise interest rates to to cool uh, these these inflation effects? Because, as you mentioned, it's hard to, to ratchet it down, and you can't ratchet it down if prices continue to, to breed north on you, right? Right, right. And, it, and it becomes kind of a vicious circle because as supplemental payments come to people, they usually don't worry about the inflation as much on that if, if they're uh, above kind of, you know, basic necessity threshold. So don't confuse... Certainly, there are as a segment of the population that is absolutely needed, um, right? You support payments and you know through loss of employment and everything else. And that shows absolutely. up in that child yeah. tax credit, right? Yeah. In the sense yeah. that your poorest twenty percent of Americans are going to get a huge lift in income, and it's, yeah. it's certainly yeah. going to help them. Yeah, it's it's more on the other end of it, right? And, and how much of that population, um, because the way the definition of the poverty rate is not so great. Um, you know, that you can, there's lots of people in this country who live really well below the poverty line. Right. We call them college students um, <laughs> uh, here, here at campus. But um, it is, you know, one of these, you know, kind of issues here that um, it's going to be very problematic because, again, I think more to worry about, the Fed is more worried about kind of, how this cycles, and if I give people more, they might not care about the inflation as much right now. And that, and that might be how the Fed is viewing it, saying, well, they're getting some kind of stimulus payment. They're not going to be as careful. You know, the price increase isn't as much as the percentage increase in the benefits that we increased at the moment. Mm -hmm. So that should override for a while. But then the worry is, is how much is that set in and cause an inflection point to where the inflation starts to get out of control? Right. You know, and... You don't know that till you're in it. Right. I've, I've, never, I've not found a case in history where somebody knows ahead of time uh, until well, cause it's... Well, because it'll, it'll wear on the consumer, that's right? right? When your consumption is 70% of your economy and you've got prices that are continuing north, yeah. eventually they're going to wake up and say, that meal out... Uh, at $20 is a little different than when I was paying 10 or 15. That, and, that's right. That's right. And, and we may see some realignment, uh, not to interrupt you, but, you know, we've kind of taken this as 70, you know, our GDP should be 70% consumption is kind of a de facto. Large um, economy problem. Large, you know, well, <laughs> that, 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 that should be normal because that's kind of a historical average since, you know, 54 or whatever. But that's not necessarily that doesn't necessarily have to remain the case. Right. You know, and I think we kind of forget that, that, you know, investment could become a higher portion of the economy and we'd still have a healthy economy. It doesn't, you know, we don't, there's kind of this unfortunate fetish with keeping consumption high in this country um, because of these historical percentage buckets gotcha. in GDP, at least in my opinion, that we've kind of tended to, you know... Hammer on that. Hammer now. on that and, like, that's somehow <laughs> some... Target. I can tell you I have found nowhere in the economic literature yet to date, uh, there might be some, where somebody has said that that's a policy target because we've optimized it and that's what we should be going for. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, that, that does not exist. Yeah. So, um, but I, I do think that that, that brings up a, a really interesting point in that from the, from the consumer's perspectives, with these price increases continuing, you're going to have to have a continued healthy labor force, and you're going to have to have a continued healthy uh, income rate. And really, when we look at our, our two charts in the slide deck on personal income 
and on the unemployment gap. Uh, personal income, that gap is quite wide only because of the three rounds of stimulus that have come through, uh, and it's diverted from trend pretty heavily. And the unemployment gap is still very high in the sense of, well, even in fact last week we missed another uh, jobless claims number. Uh, it came in higher than expected. Uh, so, you know, I'm interpreting this as, you know, if, if I'm a policymaker and I'm looking at all three of these, we don't have everybody back to work yet, we've got inflation running hot, and potentially we're going to close the output gap. So uh, we've got two of the three things that, that I would consider key in the economy running hot, so to speak. And that, I think, has an implication in the sense of there's a higher risk of a policy misstep. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Maybe in the sense of they taper too soon or they inflate too long. Yes, I, I mean, I, I agree that I think there's a kind of a big potential um, either way uh, for that. However, again, I think it's it's largely due to how the individual agents in the economy are going to frame it to themselves, whether it's good news or bad news. Um, you know, we still have industrial capacity only at about 75% mm. right now. So that could, if it picks up with people rejoining the labor force, um, certainly some casual empiricism around any town in the country right now would tell you that uh, there are people looking to hire people. Uh, and so um, if that picks up, we might see a little bit of that dampening on inflation um, because right now I think a large part of the inflation is simply coming from our standard supply and demand in that there's not as many goods. So when you've got a bunch of consumers chasing fewer goods, you're getting, I think we're getting maybe less inflation from a monetary sense and more from a production sense, which could get alleviated here with uh, getting things back to, back to capacity, getting back to work. Yeah. Uh, so I think that would alleviate a lot of problems. Now, the policy missteps may be in the sense of, of course, this ongoing debate. Um, about uh, the additional programs that were put in place for unemployment insurance and how much that may be incentivizing people to not get back in the workforce versus right. how much it will. And, of course, uh, people have different uh, perspectives on that, which is fine uh, in terms of well, you've whether they seen, like to see that or don't like to see that. You know, And you, you have already seen half of the states already retire their, their yes, extra yes. benefits. And, and we certainly have seen a correlation with the retirement and a downtick in unemployment. Um, naturally. I naturally, would think that yeah. they would retire we, we, it if the rate got low enough. We, we right? should expect, well, yeah. and again, that's the problem, right? If, if you're waiting for the rate to get low enough to retire it, you might be incentivized in keeping it higher. Higher. Yeah. You know, so, uh, and again, this comes back to a lot more of that political economy and, um, uh, you know, we've really, of course, and, and I've always had a difference of opinion in terms of government's role and incentives and, and those types of issues, and so you've got kind of one answer on one in one camp and another answer in another camp, um, and so that makes it very very difficult uh, because right. you know those those uh, answers are usually diametrically opposed to one another in terms of uh, the solution. Right. No, I the problem. I, I think th that really does um, hit the nail on the head in the sense that policy's doing all it can to fill these gaps. 
and, and it's how the agents in the economy, and I think this is very much kind of the Austrian viewpoint, it's how they interpret it and how they react to it in the sense that the reason why this may be the shortest recession on, on record is because uh, of this boom that has been created because of the response in policy. Yes. Uh, and so it has certainly bridged the gap from where we closed the economy and locked everything down. Uh, and now it, it's this, this next phase of post-COVID and, and how policymakers and how agents in the economy begin to react to everything coming in. And that's, I think, a great segue into what are the implications for the economy and, and the financial market then at that point, right? So we're, we're seeing a situation where uh, post-lockdowns and really since the summer of last year, we've seen nothing but higher growth and higher inflation since then. And it's been very much a risk-on story. And the second quarter was no different uh, in the sense of high beta performed well, uh, energy performed well, even your, your higher credits like uh, you, you know your high yield or your business development loans, all of those performed extremely well as we continued this recovery process. Um, the market's starting to interpret that a little differently and they've, they've really been uh, doing that since May. Um, there's, there's three charts we have in our slide deck that highlight the risk reward as of the 26th of July here, and you're seeing the market look more along the defensive track, and and it could potentially be of this growth slowing scare. Um, that's the way we're interpreting it. Uh, our model estimates say, look, uh, you're still going to have positive growth, but it's going to be on a decelerating rate, but you're also having the same situation in the fact that inflation's sticking higher. And so, you know, in my view, and I'm, I'm curious what you think, um, we're moving into this temporary stagflation in the sense of with inflation sticking higher, equities will still create a good hedge for that inflation, uh, but you've got the growth scare that's happening at the same time, which has caused this divergence in the 10-year falling below 1.3, which I thought was a pretty critical level. Um, how are you thinking about it, interpreting uh, the financial market implications of what we're seeing here? Yes. Well, I think I maybe become more optimistic over the last few weeks um, in the sense that I think what we're mainly seeing is more kind of animal spirit reactions to every piece, little piece of news, mm -hmm. right? So there's a lot of hypersensitivity right now in terms of reactions to uh, very minute uh, data. Right. So, uh, for instance, with COVID cases, uh, they're still well below where they were last year, but yet the reaction is much more amplified than it was previously. So I think we're, we are, uh, on a good news sense, I think we, what we're seeing is a hypersensitive reaction, but I think you're going to see kind of this, this volatility where, uh, you know, volatility index and other things are just going to move quite a bit from one day to the next based on some fairly innocuous piece of information because everybody just decides that that's going to be the thing and then the next day it's going to be oh never mind you know and you're going to see a swing back uh, the other way right and so I think that's what we're really going to see I think in general uh, 
the economic growth with the capacity, uh, I suspect will eventually take care of the inflation. Mm -hmm. um, but it's how patient, you know, we are to just, you know, it's going to take a while for those waves to subside. But in general, I think the trend is up with kind of this roller coaster of reverberations based on who knows what piece of information next week could, you know, send everybody, you know, going well, to the hills. And even as on edge as investors are as we transition to the back half of the year, uh, a couple of key indicators like uh, the volatility index still extremely low and year on year um, going back to the, the the slide deck here uh, year to date um, volatility actually I don't have it on the slide hold on let me let me find it because I do have it uh, year to date uh, down 55.57 percent mm -hmm. um, through uh, yesterday actually uh, so at 19.64. So, yep, yep. Um, um, and that's just one of them. The other one is the dollar. So mm -hmm. in the face of this massive fiscal and monetary policy, the dollar's positive for the year. Uh, mm -hmm. Year-to-date, dollar's up 2.6%. Yeah, I think it becomes this, again, this kind of ratcheting effect problem where people tend to have a presentist bias. So they're looking just at last week instead of, <laughs> you know, what how far we've come. Mm -hmm in six months. And I think that's going to continue to be the problem mm -hmm. uh, until things can kind of calm down and people can start to take a little bit, maybe more of a mid-range view again, because people are just hypersensitive right now, uh, me included, uh, to uh, the news, right? right? And um, It's almost you know, um, just hearing sentiments, meeting with clients, and looking through the data. It, it's almost like everyone wants to cut out the COVID response of March and April and just pick up this data and attach it to February and continue it. And we've not had a recession yet. It, it almost feels that way feels when that you're way, listening yeah. to people and, and, and looking at the numbers and everybody's trying to chart the trend before COVID ever got here. Uh, and it, it, it makes it, um, I think that adds to, to what you're echoing in the sense that everyone's looking for a reason and one of the things that we're saying is, look, um, currently they're, they're, markets don't sell off for the things that we know. It's for the things that we don't know, right? The March and April moment of COVID blindsided everyone, right? And so it's the, it's the things or the, the tail risk that, that we don't know about. And so if, if everybody's positioning for a policy mistake or positioning for a slower growth factor, or positioning because the Fed is going to continue the, you know, their $120 billion worth of purchases, market's not going to sell off for those reasons. Market's positioned for those. It's something that we're not anticipating that, that the market would sell off for. So. Yes, uh, yeah, I, I agree. And I think that's, I mean, that's kind of been the problem here is, um, you know, who was it, Mark Twain, you know, famously quipped, you know, I don't read the paper because I'd rather be uninformed than misinformed. But, um, <laughs> I'm paraphrasing him a little bit on that one. but It's uh, close enough. That's yeah. pretty good. Um, but I think we do that even with just following, you know, um, actively following indices and actively following those things is that it can tend to misinform you um, because your emotions will always get into it, uh, me included. 
even though I try my darndest and between the signal and the noise, right, 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 exactly. You know, it's it's very difficult to not be human, even even in modeling this stuff. We know that there is, you know, uh, still a little bit of that at play. Yeah, and and so I, I think as we, because uh, we're coming up right here on the the hour mark, and so as we frame this and wrap this together, we've got an economy that at least over the next three to six months, growth is going to be slowing down while inflation sticks higher. Um, markets positioning a little bit more defensively in favor of that growth scare. Um, we find it to be more of a temporary, but that's currently how the market's positioned, so we're going to uh, continue to act accordingly about that. Uh, but as we close here, um, anything surprising that you're looking at, anything that you're going to uh, stay looking at, um, like I mentioned, some of the things that I'm going to continue to watch is how resilient the dollar stays, especially if the infrastructure bill gets passed. Um, continuing to watch the VIX at extremely low levels, um, but I'm curious what, what other things are, are you looking at as we close here? Uh, I'm looking at more non-numeric things. I, I guess I would say, as, as, as I mentioned, it's I guess a theme for this quarter, that political economy um, and how uh, you know, kind of in general, uh, uh, people are assessing that because I think the broader moves will come from uh, people feeling more relaxed, feeling more comfortable again. Um, and until that happens, I think we'll see a lot more of kind of this hyper-focused, hyper-sensitive, you know, swing one day up, swing one day down. Uh, ending up right back where we started three days later uh, kind of behavior until we kind of get uh, consumers, and not necessarily just consumer confidence, but just consumer comfort maybe would be another word, or just individual comfort in terms of, okay, I don't have to uh, look out my window and worry that, you know, the sun has exploded again today or, or what have you, you know, I think that's, to me, I think that will be the stronger, uh, if, if that can take hold, the sooner the better, um, that we get back to kind of a less volatile environment mm. in, in terms of in the markets and you'll start to see a return to more um, steady as it goes kind of growth and you know, that kind of thing, you know, because right now so many firms are just reacting there, you know, nobody's being as proactive probably as they should be in, in a large part. Um, and it's because of that heightened uncertainty that everybody keeps going for. Right, right. Well, I think that's a, a, a great place to uh, go ahead and stick a pin in it. Uh, we greatly appreciate uh, the time that, that you take to listen to this. Um, we plan to continue to pump these out once a quarter, so we'll, we'll circle back uh, with a fourth quarter outlook and, of course, give you updates uh, along the way. Uh, so with that, we thank you, and we'll talk to you soon.